and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am not going to skirt around the issue here. I really miss our horrifying classic series. The truth is that I spend months and months of the year preparing for series like Horrifying Classics and December Dickens, and I find myself sometimes missing the groove of the spooky and the wonderful here on the show. Not that other books aren't spooky or wonderful here. You understand what I mean. Enter Edgar Allan Poe. The only two pieces of his that we've discussed on the show are his uber-famous late-in-career poem, The Raven, and his semi-late-in-career tale, The Telltale Heart. Those episodes are linked below, along with our sources at relevanceofliterature.com notes under the page for today's episode. But Poe actually did quite a bit for several genres of literature, including poetry, gothic horror, the American Gothic, and today's overarching genre, the detective story. I actually have not had a vested interest in mysteries or in detective stories until recently, which, okay, take that as you will. I remember liking Nancy Drew as a kid, but beyond that surface word, like, the interest never took. Fast forward to late 2020, when I end up buying the Anthony Horowitz novel, The Word is Murder on a Whim. Then I read Stephen King's newest novel, If It Bleeds, in December, which has a detective story as its largest portion. Then I'm thinking I should really pick up that Anthony Horowitz novel because I super enjoyed If It Bleeds. (laughs) I get into solving Sherlock Holmes puzzles to get my brain in gear for my intro to computer programming class. And then I read the introduction to a book about Edgar Allan Poe for another episode. No spoilers on that just yet. And I have my solution. Get into mystery and detective fiction by starting from the source itself. The trilogy of short stories, starting with The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Excerpt from page 203. Epigraph. What song the siren sang, or what name Achilles assumed when he hid himself among women, although puzzling questions are not beyond all conjecture. Sir Thomas Brown. This short story starts rather peculiarly with an interesting couple pages of assumptions and observations from Poe himself, or from who we think is Poe himself, until we realize that it's actually the narrator. But what is the difference between Poe and the narrator is my ultimate question (laughs) for this story. I know that Poe and the narrator are supposedly two different people, but the way that this narrator starts the opening couple pages is so much like Poe and and has so much of Poe's brevity and simplicity and description that I can't help but... Uh, sort of laugh at Poe's attempt at pushing the narration off to someone else. So we start off with all of these observations, and they're written really splendidly and really, like I said, simply and with brevity. Um, The observations, the content of them is about 
<laughs> two games really and at the core of these games chess which we all know what that is queen's gambit chess versus whist which is an english card game um it supposedly might have french origins that's up to uh the jury there you can google it yourself if you'd like <laughs> and it's um, a card game that is supposedly simplistic, but also has some uh, academic and game theory-like proponents that could be, in a sense, analyzed, which is what this passage is about. Calculation versus analysis. And Poe, or rather the narrator, is saying that chess, even the best chess players, can only calculate, they cannot analyze. Whereas Whist, the card game, uh, is a game that involves analysis on the part of the players. Poe says on page 205, quote, He makes in silence a host of observations and inferences, so perhaps to his companions, and the difference in the extent of the information obtained lies not so much in the validity of the inference as in the quality of the observation. The necessary knowledge is that of what to observe." Unquote. What's so interesting to me is already we have characteristics of all of the great detectives in literary history that we know, uh, detectives that were created by Arthur Conan Doyle and like Sherlock Holmes, for example, and uh, detectives in Anthony Horowitz novels and detectives in Agatha Christie novels. What cool different ways of introducing the whole genre with basically then with games um chess versus whist and what's what i love about this is that here's a metaphor that everyone can understand and everyone can grapple with and sort of envision in their head a chess player very calculating versus a person who's astutely good at cards someone who has predictive powers and intuitive powers just beyond what a mere calculation in chess implies and demands and here is our beginning of an amazing detective really <laughs> the narrator here is the equivalent or ends up being the equivalent of watson sort of a friend or accomplice of the detective in question this person doesn't really have the analytic powers that his detective counterpart has but he's along for the story and he's a fine narrator at that excerpt from page 206 the narrative which follows will appear to the reader somewhat in the light of a commentary upon the propositions just advanced." Unquote. Another thing I really keyed into with this narration is the mediation between addressing the reader directly and staying within the narrative. And as we get farther and farther into this short story, the deeper and deeper into the narrative we also get until the end. And so there's this entrenching effect where at the beginning there's just this narrator <laughs> talking to us and sort of expounding upon a bunch of observations that he's had about these different subjects analysis and, cal and calculation throughout his lifetime and throughout his experiences and then he gets more and more specific until we run into this specific event of the murders at question in the story and we get so entrenched into <laughs> the narrative at that point 
So that's something I really like is the progression of the narration deeper and deeper into the narration of the fictional account. So the narrator uh, ends up meeting this fellow named Dupin. Uh, he is, they, li they both live in Paris. So Dupin is, Fran is French. The narrator is probably also French. And they end up meeting because of their mutual love of books, which of course I love that little tidbit. <laughs> They're both seeking after a rare volume and they end up encountering each other many times in the search of this volume and decide to become friends. They move in together and they sort of fall into this very scholarly routine <laughs> where they lower the blinds and they put on candles and they work all day and talk all day and examine all day and then take long walks in the evenings. Dupont, however, has very strange powers of analysis and as our narrator details for us, he can essentially read minds based on accounts of putting things together very astutely together in sequence. And so there's a story that the friend details where they both fall silent on one of their evening walks and Dupont, after 15 minutes, says, oh, and blank, basically finishing off the narrator's thought and the narrator is going, how did you know exactly what I was thinking, exactly the place in the train of thought that I was thinking to answer exactly to my thoughts and then Dupont goes and he starts to reconstruct from his subconscious things that he wasn't even openly or consciously observing he begins to reconstruct all of the events that led him based on knowing his friend and knowing the trains of thoughts and the kinds of thinking that his friend does um, he leads us through everything <laughs> and um, the friend says this is amazing this is these are powers of analysis that I have not yet seen and here are the murders of Madame L'Espagne and Camille L'Espagne these are two women an older woman and her daughter and they get murdered in their house the house is a four-story house and a certain Boulevard in Paris. There are a bunch of witnesses and they uh, have different accounts written out in the newspaper. So Dupont and his friend slash assistant are reading the account of these murders through the newspaper at first. So there's lots of witnesses, as I said, there's bankers involved, there's just regular laborers, there are people of all nationalities who burst in on the scene of the crime, there's an Englishman and um, someone from the Nordic countries, there's Parisians, i.e. Frenchmen, um, there's Italians, so there's lots of different people from different backgrounds coming in and this is important because they rush in on the scene and they hear just basically horrible screaming for some say three minutes, some say ten minutes, but they just hear these horrible peeling screams. So when they finally get up to the fourth floor where the screams are coming from, there is a French man's voice um, you know, saying something like the devil or saying something like very dark, stop this. And then there is a higher pitched voice of 
unknown origin. Every person who gives an account in the newspaper, there are about a dozen of them, has a different suspicion about what uh, country or what language this person is speaking. Um, and what I love about this is it's a classic illustration of what we would call in linguistics a language ideology, which is something that's constructed over time and with your experiences and your opinions in mind. Language ideologies are super, super common and they're also extremely subversive, which means they can be dangerous. As we see in this story, um, different language ideologies are coming out from different people. So for example, if you've ever heard someone say, I love French, French is a beautiful language, versus I don't like German or Russian, they're harsh sounding or they're abrasive sounding languages, that's a language ideology. The fact is that no one language is more beautiful than another. And really, there are so many different interpretations of how languages sound based on so many different factors, your encounters with speakers of that language, that ultimately language ideology, what you think in quotes, heavy quotations of that language, is really more so shaped by your opinions of the speakers of that language rather than the language itself. There are accounts of languages, for example, like the Hopi language, which have no words to express a certain category. So for example, the Hopi language has no words to express time, but scholarship has found that that does not prevent Hopi speakers, for example, from communicating thoughts about time of day. So even though they do not have words or constructions to express time, that doesn't mean that they don't have thoughts about time, that they don't experience the passing of time in similar or exactly the same ways as speakers of other languages, and it also doesn't mean that they are barred from communicating time altogether. This is extremely important for just understanding language in general and starting to become a better human with regard to how you're treating certain people who may have accents, etc. Tangent aside, this second speaker at the scene of the crime has an extremely high-pitched voice, as I mentioned. Uh, many people think that this voice is of a different language. Some people say that it's harsh and abrasive, and they would say it's a German speaker or a Russian speaker. Some would say uh, that it's an Italian speaker or a French speaker or an English speaker. But yet, the people that are talking about these languages that they're identifying have never heard or had experiences with the languages that they're attributing to this second speaker. So for example, the English speaker in the novel says that the shrill voice is that of a German on page 216. Uh, it says, quote, is sure that it was not the voice of an Englishman, unquote. As all of the other accounts say, we are sure that this is not our language, but rather the language of the abrasive or shrill language of basically our enemies, people who we do not like as speakers and not necessarily the language. So it accounts for how no one can identify the language that is being spoken and everyone has different language ideologies about the language in question, the kinds of sounds that they're hearing. Fortunately, none of the sounds can be attributed to a human language, spoiler alert, but nonetheless, this is an extremely important detail of the case at large. 
the bodies of Madame L'Espagne and her daughter are horribly mutilated. I'm not going to really go into discussion about them because this is a kids-friendly podcast. Let's just say, though, that one of the bodies is uh, found in the chimney with very strange bruises all over, um, handprints uh, as well on the body. The other is supposedly, by the doctor's account, beat with a blunt object and um, the head has been decapitated. As we go on, Dupin develops an especial interest in the case and he's, you know, watching the news, thinking a lot about it and uh, people, news is circulating that it's really the oversights and the laziness of the Paris police that have uh, contributed to there not being anyone found. And there's a man who has been committed to prison for this crime, but Dupont is convinced that it's not him and that there's been lots of things that have been overlooked because there are really no conclusive bits of evidence that the newspaper or anyone else, in fact, can point to. So Dupont has uh, some... <laughs> let's just say some comrades in the police department, he gets the appropriate permissions to gain admittance onto the scene of the crime. So him and his friend slash confidant, the narrator, go to the scene and Dupont makes a thorough inspection um, and he also inspects the bodies. He waits a while with his thoughts and then starts to tell his friend or narrator about his thoughts on the scene of the crime. Excerpt from page 222, quote, I took the pistols, scarcely knowing what I did or believing what I heard, while Dupont went on very much as if in a soliloquy. I have already spoken of his abstract manner at such times. His discourse was addressed to myself, but his voice, although by no means loud, had the intonation which is commonly employed in speaking to someone at a great distance. His eyes, vacant in expression, regarded only the wall." Unquote. Let's talk about what Dupont notices at the scene of the crime. Namely, the windows have all been shut and locked from the inside, namely the only points of exit from the building that the murderers could have used are all shut and bolted from the inside. There's no other points of exit that the murderers could have used. Dupont realizes that there's a spring mechanism that controls the windows so that when they're closed they automatically lock. So there is a way if you could get the window open in the first place to close it and then the window locks itself, meaning that if one could remove one of the bolts from the window, then open the window and then close it and the bolt could remain seemingly in place or aesthetically in place, then the window would appear to be locked from the inside when it really isn't. Um, and so he inspects the first window, the bolt is securely bolted, really screwed in place almost to the head as it's described. He goes to the second window, and in fact, the head has been broken off, as with a blunt object. And so, or the screw part has been broken off, excuse me. So the head is still there aesthetically, but in reality, the window isn't bolted shut. So the spring mechanism still works, having the appearance of the, the curtains being drawn after the window is shut, but the window is in fact openable. 
And when Dupont further opens the window himself to check, the bolt remains in place and then he closes it and it looks and it has the appearance, all appearances of being shut. So there's a way for the person to get up to the fourth floor essentially and come in the window and make a quick escape out with everything looking shut afterwards. There's also some very disturbing bruises on the body of the woman who's been stuck head last up the chimney. So it, I don't know, I imagine like a Barbie doll. I don't mean to be insensitive, but I imagine like a Barbie doll and you just put her upside down into a chimney. Um, and that's how this body was found with the head sticking out of the chimney essentially. And so the bruises on the body are not made by a human strangulation as one would think he produces an image of the bruises on the body and wraps that image around a, a dowel, a wooden dowel of the same circumference and it's impossible for human hands to have that uh, particular configuration of fingers on the body of the deceased. So essentially the conclusion there is that this person was not murdered by a human. There was also hair found at the scene of the crime. Hair pulled out from the root, so there's still skin and stuff hanging onto the hair. And this hair is also not human hair. It's very thick, matted animal hair. So that's another thing that, we, that Dupont rather notices. Finally, there's a ribbon found at the scene of the crime uh, at the bottom near the window uh, where the window was opened. And that ribbon is a sailor's ribbon and it's tied in a certain way so as to denote what kind of vessels the sailor travels on. And so what Dupont does is he realizes there's a sailor involved and this sailor has not killed the two women. This sailor probably had a pet i.e. an orangutan, and his orangutan got loose and killed the two women. Uh, and he either watched or was part of the scene in some way trying to chase after the orangutan, and uh, the orangutan killed the woman. Um, Dupont really focuses on the athleticism of climbing up this pole on the side of the house and swinging into the window and then swinging out very quickly and down the pole, which a sailor could do, but also the orangutan could do really, really effortlessly. And indeed, um, what Dupont does is he <laughs> puts out an advertisement of essentially looking for a sailor on this kind of ship. We have your orangutan. Please come to this residence so that we can return it to you. <laughs> um, and so Dupont knows that if his speculations are correct, which he asserts they are speculations until they're proven correct, um, he will have essentially the person who saw the crime in uh, his presence and he will get an explanation. Excerpt from page 235. Quote, I don't mean that you should be at all this trouble for nothing, sir, said the man. Couldn't expect it, and very willing to pay a reward for the finding of the animal, that is to say, anything in reason. 
Well, replied my friend, that is all very fair to be sure. Let me think. What should I have? Oh, well, I will tell you. My reward shall be this. You shall give me all the information in your power about these murders in the room morgue. Dupont said the last words in a very low tone and very quietly. Just as quietly, too, he walked towards the door, locked it, and put the key in his pocket. He then drew a pistol from his bosom and placed it, without the least flurry, upon the table. Unquote. And so, in a mere 40 pages or so, we get to the solution of the crime, uh, which is that the sailor tells the rest of the story from this point on. The sailor does indeed uh, come essentially at Dupont's beck and call. <laughs> um, uh, of course, Dupont has not found the orangutan yet. It's just a piece of intuition that he has, and he's done some research about these kinds of animals, so he thinks he's probably right. But yeah, he has really no idea about the sailor nor the orangutan. Um, and it's amazing because, of course, he's right, and of course his intuition has prevailed in the story, as these things always do in detective stories. So the sailor does reveal all. He is innocent. He found the orangutan in Borneo when he was visiting. His partner, who he had captured the orangutan with, uh, had, is deceased. So um, he is the sole owner of the orangutan. He brings the orangutan back to... Paris, his place in Paris, and locks it up in a closet. He comes home one day and he finds the orangutan uh, with a razor, a shaving razor, uh, trying to shave. So the orangutan is doing some um, a really interesting human motion that he saw the his captor do, and uh, he eventually escapes and is in a frenzy, goes into the fourth floor of the house, ends up murdering the two women in a frenzy, um, somewhat by accident seems. There's a couple things that transpire in the room that I won't get into. You can read the story if you are very interested in it. It's very well written. Um, the man who is finally climbing up the pipe to the house is screaming, no, you know, this is terrible. And that's the point at which the witnesses who have heard the screaming all this time um, hear the two voices. One, that is the Frenchman, the captain of the ship, or not the captain, the sailor who is, of course, a French speaker. And the second, the high-pitched voice of no language of the orangutan. From there, things resolve quickly, as they always do in these stories, and the orangutan is found by its owner, sold, and the person who is in prison for the crime is taken out because he is wrong wrongfully convicted, of course. Case closed. What I love about this story is that one of the principal themes in it is imitation, and what an interesting, quirky, colloquial theme that we have going on throughout this story, um, and also throughout the history of this story and how it's been imitated throughout time. So at the core of the story is the orangutan imitating time and time again things that he's seen from his captors, potentially even imitating the violence that he's seen from his captors, not only in Borneo as he was captured, but throughout his time in France, being locked in a closet, being whipped by the sailor. 
And so the orangutan imitating being shaved, the razor is later the implement that he uses to kill one of the women and decapitate her. But even in the fourth, fourth story of this house, he is positioning the woman as if he were a barber and shaving her head. And so all of this imitation has a very comes to a head really when you realize that on the broad scale of this story as well there is so much imitation going on with as i said in the beginning stories by arthur conan doyle and agatha christie and anthony horowitz and the amazing mystery writers of all time and so um what i love about this story is it's very it's you know the oldest one of the oldest detective stories out there but it's also incredibly fresh in the way that poe tells the story and the way that poe even describes intuition and the strange quote-unquote mystic like powers of this detective dupont so as we continue the trilogy we are going to read the other two stories in this detective trilogy here they're really really short stories about 30 pages each this is the first the second one is to come in the following weeks um i want you as the listeners to comment down below and tell me things that you notice from detective fiction stories or murder mystery stories um by your experiences. I obviously, as I mentioned in the beginning, do not have that much experience with these kinds of stories, but I would love to know more connections that you're drawing out um, with these different themes. Another, for example, is the distrust of the police, police oversight, which I found to be really inventive, especially at this time and in this point in Poe's career. All right, that is all. Thank you so much for your time and your attention, and I will see you all next time. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.